5, and we're going to attempt to look at verses 18 through 20. And I'll probably actually just leave off verses 18 and 20. I give you some thoughts in your notes there that you can um, take home and ponder for yourself through that passage. It's kind of an interesting day. I don't know about you, but there are some days where I just wish the Lord would come back. But it's also those days when I feel like that, which is, this is one of those days. I'm also overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Because I usually have to remind myself of all the good things that are going on in my life and the things that God is doing in the midst of us. But this has been a sort of a bewildering passage, and Ecclesiastes isn't that easy of a book. Solomon lays out these thoughts, but at first not everything is really clear. And especially looking at verses 8 and 9, we have this sort of negative statement that comes in verse 8, but then we have a positive in verse 9. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. And so it makes it sometimes a little bit hard to figure out what Solomon is talking about or what he's trying to get us to understand. And at the end of my meditation going through this chapter, I find that he's going to deal with possessions, but there is sort of this mixed element, gift and evil. Can something good be evil? And the answer is yes. Yes, it can. Not in and of itself, but how we respond to it. In other words, when I come to to chapter 5, and as I've continued to walk through this chapter, Solomon is helping to remind me that I need to keep the ultimate ultimate. In other words, not to make good things into idols in my heart, because that is usually what we do with idols of the heart. You know, sometimes we think that idols have only thing to do with the the nation of Israel, the Old Testament. Idols don't exist today. Maybe if you go to Africa, you'll definitely see them there or India. But they really don't have anything to do with us. But they absolutely do have so much to do with us. And idols of the heart tend to be good things. Good things that we've made more of than we should have made. In other words, there are many things in life that can be God alternatives. And if we're not paying attention, as Solomon challenges us to do in these verses, we can find ourselves making gods of these things. We can take a good thing, among many good things, good things that we just read in these verses that God has given to us to enjoy, but we can take this good thing and make it a supreme thing so that it demands from us whatever God is expected to receive from us. Our time, our effort, our energy, our love, our delight. Really, the reality as I'm going through Ecclesiastes is that if I enjoy the things that God has given us to enjoy, I must also enjoy God in that. Otherwise, I fall short of. And so Solomon is going to help us to understand as he exposes again the issue of Ecclesiastes that he is going to expose the emptiness, the futility, the frustration, the final misery of life without God. And it's interesting how he brings our focus there in the first few verses of chapter 5. And it isn't that that has left his mind as he walks through this chapter, because he's going to come back to it again in verses 18 through 20. He's going to focus on the goodness of God. But life without God is not good. It's a miserable life. It's a frustrating life. It's a terrible life. 
It's a joyless life. And if I could for you this morning, this is a true story, and some might be able to relate to it, but there was a man and his wife, they were building their dream home, right? And there's nothing wrong with having a dream home, place where you want to settle at the end when you've retired and this is what you want it to look like. And so they dreamed about it, they planned it, they designed it, everything about it, what they wanted it to look like and how the backyard was going to look and all the things that they would be able to enjoy and they're thinking of the memories that they're going to have there. And they even moved a trailer in next door so they could watch the house go up step by step. But then in the process, as the house was finished and they were getting ready to move in, she had a heart attack and she died. This is Ecclesiastes. This is what Solomon does for us with this book. The purpose of pointing out these things, these grievous, these grievous evils, notice verse 13 of chapter 5. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. When he points these things out, or as sometimes rendered, these sore afflictions, he is not trying to make us godless to sort of shake our fists at God. He's not trying to make us cynical or hopeless. But what he's trying to help us to understand is that we need to despair when we begin to think that joy and finally we can find some sort of meaning and purpose in life under the sun without God. In other words, he is showing us the vanity of naturalism and of godlessness. That we need to reach hold of God, to cling to God, and, and in this then we can enjoy this life and the things of this life, and in this we can then see these things for what they really are if we find ourselves delighting in the maker and the giver of them. So Solomon is going to take us on a journey, and verses 8 and 9 seem rather sort of disconnected with the rest of the chapter, but they really aren't, and there's a number of ways of which they're connected, and I'll show you in the notes, but it is interesting that he moves from talking about integrity, of making vows and keeping them, of making promises to God and keeping them, and then he moves to the issue of politics, government, and the lack of integrity that we can find there. And the reality of the fact is that we should not be shocked when we do. One of the other connections for this passage is the reference to the poor in verse 8. And we'll see this as we walk through this. But all too often in the struggle for power, there brings suffering for the underdog, the little guy. We see an increasing gap happening within our society in America. It is the eradication of the middle class. Why? The intent is that there is to be an elite upper class and then everyone else is lower class. That's the end game. That's the whole system and what it's about. It's what they're seeking to achieve. And Solomon helps to point these things out. And not only that, but when he talks about the issue of rulers here, we're going to find that there's money involved. But in this case, it's a lack of it. Because sometimes when the rich are powerful, and oftentimes what they do when they're in places of power, they start to afflict and oppress the poor. And the poor cannot defend themselves. They can't speak out for themselves. They, they can't challenge the government. And the wheels of justice tend to grind very slowly for those who are poor, those who do not have the money to be able to defend themselves. They either cannot afford to wait out their situation or they can't afford financially to speed up the process. They're stuck. 
and they suffer at the hands of those who are in power and in control. And this is the perspective that Solomon gives us, but it's interesting because he's going to give us this positive statement in verse 9. And so we'll come back to that because it's important. But he is going to pick up on the issue of the poor and he's going to run through this passage and he's going to talk about money and good things, verse 11. The rich man in 5.12, riches in verses 13 through 14. Riches and wealth in 5.19, he's going to carry this over into chapter 6, verse 2. And what's very interesting is that he carries this thought down into chapter 6. And in verse 2, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth, honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. In other words, God doesn't allow him to enjoy that. Interesting contrast with the ending verses of chapter 5, is it not? We have then this reality of the fact for us to even be able to, to enjoy the things that we have that God gives, that God is also necessary in that. And then he's going to talk about the poor man again in chapter 6, verse 8. But we will come back to those verses next week. But the poor under the oppressive government. This is what happens with sinful human nature. We do this. We take what's good and we distort it. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. But what's interesting is how Solomon lays this out. If you see the oppression of the poor and denial of justice and the righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. So what's interesting is that Solomon lays out in verse 8, there's these tiers, these levels of government who are watching out for one another. So the Good News translation does it this way, every official is protected by the one over him. Interesting thought, is it not? So we can look at this and say, well, as far as our government goes, this is a good thing, right? Because you have these levels, these successive levels, these tiers of responsibility and so on. That provides accountability, right? Checks and balances. This is a good thing. Right? Government can run efficiently and can run justly. We can hold everyone accountable, right? All in all, we go through this process and this is what we think of. But at the same time, this mutual protection can also hide and make it very hard to root out corruption. Because one level, level protects the next level and on down it goes. In other words, the protection starts from the top down and the bribes and everything go from the bottom up. Everyone gets a piece. It's interesting when we look at our government, we see this happen, do we not? I'm watching some guy and he's, you know, political commentator and he's talking about how the budget gets passed through recently and, and you know, it's coming on Christmas, we're going to shut down the government, yeah, you say that all the time and, right, we know it's not going to shut down and all you want is to push your money through so you can get what you want to get out of it, but he was totally shocked that, that we had Republicans who signed off on this thing and pushed the budget through, which there was a lot of, what, the technical term is pork, right, there was a lot of this stuff in it, right, that was completely useless and it was money there to just be used by anybody for anything, really. So he's shocked that Republicans signed off on this. And I'm sitting there thinking, are you just sort of acting that way because you need to have something to talk about in your show? Are you really shocked? Shocked. Because I'm not. The answer is money. <laughs> this is why they passed it through. They're all getting something out of it. 
they all have something to gain from this. And this is what Solomon highlights for us, right? With these successive levels of government, there is this sharing of bribes. There is this sharing of protection. He says, you ought not to be shocked about these things. This is what sinful fallen man does. But yet, I don't know about you, but I sure do sometimes. <laughs> I get a little shocked. <laughs> but I shouldn't. I shouldn't. And it isn't that we walk around with this cynical attitude all the time, although it's really hard not to sometimes, right? But we need to be realists. Optimistic realists, but realists. So what's interesting then, and I just, if I could take you on the journey through Ecclesiastes and the Hebrews solely, it would just, it would be awesome. I would love to do that, but it would be tough. But how it reads so many times, it's just intriguing how Solomon composes everything. And in Hebrew, it's clear. Some English translations, they try to keep on the flow of verse 8 and keep it a little bit on the negative side of things, but it really isn't. Verse 9, it's positive. After all, a king cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. In other words, he looks at this benefit. Government is oppressive. Yes, sometimes it does that, but it doesn't override the value of stability that it can bring to a land. Even the king benefits from the cultivation of the land. And when the king and the people understand this, they can enjoy it for what it is, and they can be happy together. Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. But our tendency is, when we see something bad and corrupted like that, we want to throw the whole thing out. And say, let's just get rid of it. But anarchy is not the answer. And if we are as sinful as Scripture says that we are, we can't trust ourselves to govern ourselves. And God puts these providentially in place. He raises up governments. He brings them down. He controls them all. They don't operate without God. Thus, we need to remember, despite the presence of oppression and corruption, yet there is an advantage to having a government. I don't know if I can utter the words and agree with Derek Kidner, but he says, better a tyrant than anarchy. So this is what Solomon does now. He opens the door and he's going to move us then in verses 10 through 17. He's going to deal with the pursuit of money. Two of my favorite topics, not government and finances. <clears throat> and what he wants us to understand, and he's covered this before, but there are truths that he deals with here that he didn't deal with in previous sections that we've seen, is he's going to talk about the trapping of pursuit of wealth as one's life goal. doesn't deny the fact that we won't have money, that some won't be rich, that we won't have lots of possessions or land. He doesn't deny the fact that, that we should you know, invest in those kinds of things, but he gives us a proper perspective. And this is carried over into the New Testament. Christ also teaches about our finances. He says, do not store up treasures here on earth. Store your treasures in heaven. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So wherever your treasures are, that's where your heart is. And this is what Solomon is going to caution us with. There are drawbacks to money, and we have to realize this, right? 
it's not, it, it's an, in one sense, it's a necessary evil. We have to have it, right? We, we have to feed our kids and clothe ourselves and do all these things. Got to pay rent, got to pay mortgage and do all of this stuff. But Solomon says, you need to understand there's drawbacks. The first is this, verse 10, money is addictive and unsatisfactory. He who loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. As money flows in, there is this element of lack of contentment. You want more. But here's the thing, that void is never going to be filled. You will never be ultimately and totally satisfied with it. But yet we can find ourselves pursuing it, find ourselves thinking that somehow wealth is going to bring true happiness and contentment. Look at all those who play the lottery, thinking that if I win it big, my life is going to be amazing from here on out. But it's amazing how many of them commit suicide after they win. Because they find that no matter how much money you have, you cannot buy true joy. You can't. So it isn't the nature then, Solomon is going to help us to understand, it's not the nature of earthly goods to quench the deep desires of man's spiritual needs. You can't do that with these things. They're meant for us to enjoy, but they can only take us so far. And here's the thing is that when the income starts coming in and it starts building up and we start to see an abundance, it's interesting, the things that we used to think were abundance in the past, all of a sudden they're not enough anymore. Man, you know, Lord, if I was just making a little bit more this month, right? And if I just had this amount of money coming in and I made this much a year, then everything would be grand and great and I could handle this. And I wouldn't want anything else after that. But then all of a sudden you get it, right? And then all of a sudden you start to realize you need more things and I need more of this and more of that. And all of a sudden now we need more income. And before you know it, you can find yourself on this roller coaster in which you look at whatever was abundance to you before. It's now meager. It's inadequate. Right? My desires grow. My aspirations grow. Everything starts to enlarge. And then when that starts to happen, verse 11, Solomon says, you get those hangers on. He says for us, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. Interesting thought. In other words, the more you have, the more people come around and help you want to spend it. Lottery winners, all of a sudden, they've got long-lost relatives showing up at their front door with all these grand ideas of how they can help spend their money for them, right? But it starts this way. And it isn't that you can't have a salary increase or any of that. But Solomon is cautioning us to, to be careful because with these things then, right, it is producing within us a desire for more, 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 more. Not being content in what God gives you for the day. The needs of the day and the way that he provides for each and every day. Accept each day as God gives it and the things in it as God gives it. Don't worry about tomorrow or the next day. Because when we start going down that pathway, Solomon says we open ourselves up to all kinds of problems. The increased income will draw more attention to, from family and friends and all of that. They're going to come. They want to help you spend it. In other words, the more the income, the bigger celebration. The list starts to grow of all the invitees who want to come and help you spend your money. And it's interesting because when I read this and I was thinking about this thought and I was thinking about MC Hammer, you know, rapper back in the day. Can't touch this, right? The song, we still hear it on commercials. 
And it was interesting because I remember seeing him in an interview years and years ago, and he was talking about how he'd go on tour, and he had this huge entourage, and it kept growing. And it started off with family, and he would give a few of them jobs, and then he had his friends that grew up in the hood with him and all this stuff. And so he started taking them all along. And so they would all go on tour with him. And he said, after a while, the people who were there, they weren't even working for me. They just went on tour, but he paid for it all. Well, no one's going to complain about it, right? If you're handing out freebies, they're going to show up. And then all of a sudden, right, he's starting to realize, I don't have any money left, not only that, but Uncle Sam came and said, hey, you didn't pay us our share. So now we're going to take your house and everything else, so I guess you can't touch this. But they came and they took everything else from him, and he lost it all. But this is what happened. Solomon says, you need to know. If you start pursuing income and people start going to start coming around, the more that it increases for you. The more you have, the more headaches you're going to have. And this coming from a man who had everything. Who better to speak to this? Not only that, verse 12, that money disturbs one's peace. Solomon says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach, indicating abundance, of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Two elements that are here, right? Having riches and not having riches. So the working class individual, he sleeps soundly, even though he's living off of rice and beans. Good with that. But there's insomnia for the one whose stomach is full. And it is very interesting. You would think that they would be satisfied. And in Hebrew... That same word that's used in verse 10, translated satisfied, is the same one that's used here of the full stomach. But Solomon is showing us the irony of it all. You think you have everything. You think that you would be content then. And that there would be satisfaction and peace in your rest. But he says, no, it's not going to happen. The working man earns and eats his daily bread. Depends for tomorrow's supply upon tomorrow's toil. And he sleeps sweetly. But the capitalist and the investor, they have restless nights of anxiety. Is my money going to be managed right, right? You watch all the stuff that's happened lately, right? Cryptocurrency, the complete ripoff, right, of all of those people's money. Retirement's gone. Millions upon millions of dollars. And no one knows where it's at. Someone asked, should ask that young man just how content he feels now. It's also a point, an example for us, how quickly money can just slip right through our fingers. We can't give accounting for billions of dollars. We don't know where it all went. Really? <laughs> so Solomon says, okay, let's talk about wealth, loved and lost. It's the old saying, better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. But in this case, probably not. He's going to talk about this issue, and this provides for us a transition that happens in verses 13 through 17. He's going to talk about the individual at greater jeopardy, potential of experiencing this greater loss. It's interesting to me because he does this often in Ecclesiastes, is that he uses death as sort of the final negation for misplaced human values in life. You can't take it with you, is really what he comes down to. Verses 15 and 16. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor, and he can carry, not carry in his hand. 
Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil, exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So comes the question, so what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? <laughs> Answer, nothing. Wealth is acquired, verse 13, there is grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. And then verse 14, but when those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. You can acquire the wealth, but then you can lose the wealth, and you make a bad decision, a bad business venture, and all of it can just go, and all of a sudden now you have nothing for your kids, you have nothing for basic needs, you have nothing for yourself, you have nothing left. He says, if you're going to store up your whole life in this, you need to understand just how fleeting this is, how empty it is. But we watch our neighbors get up every morning and, and they go off thinking that this is the goal of life, to accomplish, to achieve, to earn this money, to have all of this wealth, to have the property and the cars and everything else. And they're beating themselves to death trying to accomplish it all and to own it all. And yet they are futile in everything that they are doing. Because Solomon says you can't take any of that stuff with you. It's interesting because I've had several in my family. My mom passed. A couple of her sisters were preparing to go home to be with the Lord. So they start getting life in order, and they were sending me all of these pictures that, that were sent to them from my mom for me to deal with. And I said, fine, just send them to me, and I'll take care of them but it's like I'm, I'm going through them and I'm looking at all of these memories and experiences and everything that we take pictures of right but you don't take any of those things when you go and how often I sit and look at my life and say I spend so much time and effort pursuing things that in the end I can't take with me and in the end they have no bearing on eternity whatsoever Therefore, Solomon says, you have nothing to pass on then, an ultimate proof for this folly of a life spent trying to amass wealth, death. Not only does this wealth pass through your fingers before you know it, and that is enough to show you the frustration of life, but he says, at the last, what does he or she exactly get when you leave this place? And emphatically in Hebrew, he says, absolutely nothing. Of all that stuff in savings, you die, guess where it stays? <laughs> but I'm sure the government will figure out a way to come there and take whatever's left behind. So I leave you with this thought and prayer, and you have notes on the last few verses, and we'll come back and look at those next week. God provides good things that man takes those things, and he makes them into heart idols. We take things that we are meant to enjoy and we make them the ultimate and the supreme and we ought not to do that. My prayer for myself must always be and I would suggest that for all of us we need to pray for the ability to rightly enjoy what God has given us to enjoy. To take each day as God gives it and the things in it and be content in that. Because all truly God-honoring delight in creation is a marvelous gift from God. This is the end of the chapter. It's all a gift from God. And we can never then forget the giver and the gift. 
But the unfortunate thing is that there is a lot of non-God-honoring delight in creation that's not a marvelous gift of God's grace. But if we delight in creation at all with a heart for God that sees Him as maker and sees the gift as a taste of the giver, that delight is a gift of God's grace. May we have that kind of delight. May we find in the things that God gives us, property, money, whatever it is, may we find a way in which we worship God in and through the usage of that and we give Him all the thanks. Because the question comes, what do we have that we have not received? I'm going to do a little uh, something in our, our closing this morning. T, I'm going to take this mic off. You can stop recording. Hold on.